The rest of us will be in Hebrews 11 again this morning. And so if you want to find that passage once again that we read just a little while ago. This afternoon, I am going to an extended family gathering. And one of the questions that I might ask to different family members at the gathering will be, what would you say faith is? In your own words, what does faith mean? Try it. It's a great way to start a conversation, and people will tell you what they think faith is. Most Americans, when they think of faith or speak of faith, think of it in one of several terms. They think of what we might say is subjective, so it comes from within a religious preference. In other words, you have your faith, I have my faith, and both are equally valid and everything is fine. Subjective religious preference is how we use faith many times as Americans. Now, I don't think anyone at lunch today will say subjective religious preference. But based upon the way people do talk when they're not being evaluated, that's oftentimes what we mean by faith as Americans. Or we mean something along the lines of, you just got to have faith. Just keep the faith or, or keep faith. And you just got to believe. And what we mean by that, even though we wouldn't say it this way, is we mean having faith in faith. So the object of our faith is faith. You just got to have faith, brother, or something like that. But when we look to the Bible, we find something rather different. When we look to the Bible and we ask ourselves the question, what is faith? There's a book titled, What is Faith? It's one of my favorite little books. What we find is faith is used in, in a couple of different ways but faith is sometimes used, not very often, but sometimes uh, with um, talking about the gospel. Okay, It's the faith. The, the article is there. We're talking about the body of Christian doctrine. But even there, it's used rather objectively, not in, inside of a subjective. It's, it's very objective. There's this um, body of, of teaching, the faith. And in that sense, we might say, keep the faith. But most of the time in the Bible, when we talk about faith, faith is trust or dependence. The synonym is belief, but it means trust or dependence, and it's in relationship to what? Itself? Now, most of you here today know that faith in the Bible, most of the time, is speaking in terms of faith in an object, and the object of our faith is... It's God. It's Christ. Okay? And as the great old saying goes, faith is only as good as its object. Okay? So we don't have faith in faith, and you have your faith, and I have my faith, and they're equally valid. When we're talking in biblical terms, we're talking about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5, for example. Therefore, we have been justified, declared perfect in the eyes of God by faith. And according to the flow and the context of Romans 3, 4, and 5, it's clearly not faith in faith, faith in self. It's faith in the finished work of Jesus. So we're trusting that His righteousness is going to be enough to satisfy God, and therefore it's not about our corrupted unrighteousness. Make sense? You say this feels like a theology lesson, and this is the first day of the year. What a happy new year! What a great way to start things off. 
Let's think biblically. So even in our passage this morning in Hebrews 11, there you have to remember that it's not talking about faith in faith. It's faith in God, trusting in one who is outside of you, who is more powerful than you, who has a great reputation for following up on his promises. We're faith in God in focus in Hebrews 11, not faith in faith. And what's interesting about Hebrews 11 is it does have this unseen emphasis, which is not always the case. That's even another way it's used. Okay, this is something we haven't seen yet oftentimes. They're talking about a city, a heavenly city that we're anticipating. Well, we have to trust God, not trust, trust, but we're trusting in God that He will make good on those promises for something that hasn't happened yet, that we haven't seen yet. So sometimes, like in Hebrews 11, there's a futuristic aspect, and there's a big one in Hebrews 11. Okay? So Hebrews 11 is about the great hall of faith, we call it. Great title. But it's examples of those who are trusting in God for what they have not yet seen so many times. And I'm going to ask you this question in Hebrews 11. Why, is it, why was this important? Not for us. Let's talk about other people. Why was this important when it was first written? And those of you who have been with us in our study of Hebrews, you, you know the answer. And it's because these Christians in the first century were being persecuted. And they're having to think through whether or not it's really worth following Jesus. Because it seems like when you believe in Jesus, you get less. You don't have all of the creature comforts and you don't have all the good relationships you once experienced. In fact, now there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of tension in your life. And it seems like I got a whole lot of nothing. So why was Hebrews 11 so strategic in its context? Because it's a great reminder that there is something we haven't seen yet, but we're trusting in God to make good on his promises. And it's going to be worth it. Okay, next question, why is this important for us? We're not first century Christians. We're not uh, now all of a sudden Jewish Christians who've been exiled from our Jewish families and we can no longer be involved in, temp in the worship at the temple and the priesthood and all this. We're in a totally different kind of realm. And yet we're not. Because if we say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have faith in Him for my righteousness, you just went against the grain religiously in the 21st century. And you may have just stepped into jeopardizing some of your closest relationships. And now all of a sudden, you might be morally out of step. Because you say, I follow Jesus as the one who paid for my sins, my allegiance is to Him, and morally I want to do, with what, do what would honor Him. And now you feel the rub there. And sometimes, even culturally, this makes an impact. Not always. So Hebrews 11 is a great text for us because it's going to help remind us that we're trusting in God for something better like so many others before us. Like so many others before us. Okay? That's where we're really going to focus this morning. 
in what we're going to do this morning. And so, Hebrews 11, we can look at it in three major sections. Uh, If we call this a drama of faith, there are three major acts in this drama of faith. The first one is dealing with those in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 6, and we find it in the first seven verses. And so we're going to look at this first act in the faith drama in the first seven verses in just a moment. It says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Confidence in the future, right? Trusting in God in our bigger context regarding the future. Now, I guess I didn't do a very good job of, of setting things up because I forgot to remind you that when we get to 11.1, as we do so many times, we read that and our brains kind of go, oh yeah, that sounds good and religious like it should be read in church, but I don't really get it. And we start thinking about faith and faith and things like that. I just would encourage you to draw in your Bible. If you only do it once a year, you're going to use up your one time right now because it's the first of the year. But draw an arrow from verse 39 of chapter 10 to verse 1 of chapter 11. Remember, we've added the chapter divisions for convenience. Those weren't there originally. And when we read verse 39 of chapter 10, we we hear these words, but we are not of those. We, true Christians, he's saying, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. They show themselves to not have genuine faith. They don't persevere. They don't continue through the trials. It goes on to say in verse 39, but of those who have faith and and preserve their souls. That ended on a real strong point. Genuine Christians persevere. Their faith is genuine and it preserves their souls. It doesn't lead to destruction. They continue to cling to Christ. And Hebrews 10 was really intense and sort of in your face in that regard. And then he gives us chapter 11. Let me give you example after example of example after example of people who faced hardships and they didn't shrink back. Conclusion. Don't you do it either. Okay, you see what he's doing? Now hopefully I can do a better job. Confidence in verse 1 is the emphasis. This hoped for, this trusting, this conviction, this strong sense of things that haven't been seen. You don't need to go to all of these passages, but we've been seeing this sort of flavor all through chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 35, confidence Chapter 10, verse 19, confidence. Chapter 10, verse 22, full assurance of faith. Chapter 10, verse 23, we are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So he's been beating this drum of genuine faith, persevering, holding on to the end, legitimate, not compromising. And then he says, let me give you examples. Let me give you all kinds of examples in chapter 11. Then verse 2 says in chapter 11, For by it, by this faith that is not spurious, that is not tentative, but it's genuine, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. From whom? They were all commended from their friends. Noah's friends said, Hey Noah, nice boat. Did you get it at the boat show? Where can I get one? He wasn't commended by his friends and his peers. If anything, he was condemned by them for being a nut job. Right? 
But Noah was commended by the one who matters. He was commended by God. Okay, that's characteristic of believers. They're trusting in God for their future. And then we see in verse 3 these words, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What the author of Hebrews is doing there is he's saying, just think about creation. He's talking to believers and believing Jewish people, yes, primarily. And well, how do we know that God created the world? Were you there? No, it's something that we trust. It's unseen. No one was there other than God. Richard Dawkins wasn't there. Nobody was there. But a believer believes that God created the world. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. You're trusting in something objective outside of yourself. And so just as you believe that, we're believing for our future for God to provide even though we can't see it with our own eyes. And then it says in verse 4, he's going to give us some names. By faith Abel, so now Genesis 4 offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Certainly he still speaks through Scripture, and he's still an example of faith and one who God commended. Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch, so now we have Genesis 5, was taken up so that he should not see death, and He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Then it says in verse 6, something important regarding verse 5, and without faith it is impossible to please him. So apparently Enoch was a man of faith because otherwise he wouldn't be pleasing to God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Which is interesting. Really, it's seeking him. He's the reward. He's the one who's being sought after ultimately. Then verse 7 says, By faith Noah, now Genesis 6, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Notice that's echoing verse 1. It's unseen. Noah hadn't seen this yet. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world. The world would have acted in sight only, not by faith in God's word regarding the judgment to come. It was a message of condemnation to them and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So that ends our first phase of the drama. We're we're dealing with pre-flood people, early chapters of Genesis kinds of people, and he gives us real-life examples that certainly Jewish people would have said, oh yeah, I know those guys. Well, remember those guys when you are struggling and suffering in the here and now and you're thinking, maybe I need to go back to my old religion because it seemed to deliver better than the one I'm in right now. Remember even these men of old before the flood. It's kind of interesting, that last statement there, I think, in verse 7, how Pauline it sounds. An air of righteousness that comes by faith. Well, it's not just Pauline, it's just biblical. That's what we need to be right in the eyes of God. We need righteousness, and how do we get righteousness? We get righteousness by faith. It's something that's not ours. It's something that God provides for us, ultimately because of Christ's righteousness. 
Now let's move to the second act in the faith drama. And this one's a pretty large section. It's verses 8 to 22. And the focus is Abraham and his descendants. And again, remember, in an original context, you're going to deal with early chapters of Genesis. That's appealing to the Jewish people, the Jewish audience. Then you're going to deal with Abraham and his descendants. That's definitely appealing to a Jewish audience. Father Abraham, right? And then he's going to talk, finally, in the third act in the drama, he's going to talk about Moses. And you're going to cover your bases. Um, And if these folks, our great ancestors if we're Jewish, quite frankly, our great ancestors if we're believers, if they persevered, even though they couldn't see it in the tangible, we should learn from their example and persevere and continue to trust God in the here and now for what we can't see in the here and now. Verse 8, let's get it going or we'll be here next year. Uh, Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed, which is showing that his faith wasn't just a profession. It was genuine. It showed itself in something. It persevered. It obeyed. By faith Abraham obeyed being stressed even in the way he says it when he was called to go out to a place interesting he says a place he does, it's not even it's not even really defined for him that's trusting god when you don't know the details to go out to a place i think the writer to hebrews is stressing the obscurity of it all you trust god but for what exactly well i'm not going to tell you exactly to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance this is genesis 17 talk And he went out not knowing where he was going. See the example? It's an example of faith. Verse 9 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. That's being stressed because he's going to compare that in just a little while to something more permanent. But here it's to live in tents, stressing the temporary, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So faith showing itself in obedience to do what God says, no matter what, even though you don't know the place, even though it's a foreign land, even though we're calling us to be nomadic people. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to, grammatically, even the way he words it, it's stressing this, this strong anticipation, waiting expectantly to the city. Oh, notice it was tents and now we're talking about a city stressing permanence that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So he's a great example of a man of faith to trust God for what doesn't look so great. And even when God delivers, he's still not satisfied with that. He's looking forward to something even greater than that, looking forward to this greater city. Something that is more significant. He's trusting in God. Object of faith is God. Remember that in your trials. Remember that when you have to do something and God calls you to do something, when you see God in His Word saying, this is how it is, this is what you do, this is the right thing, and you say, I I, I need more clarity. That's not enough for me. I need all my T's crossed, all my I's dotted. A person of faith trusts God and ultimately He's going to take care of them and ultimately it's going to mean the city. So it speaks to us in that way. Then verse 11 says, By faith Sarah herself. So we go from patriarch to matriarch. Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful. 
So the object of her faith is the one who is faithful. I love that, don't you? Who had promised. He's faithful. The one who has promised is faithful. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, sexually speaking, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Genesis twenty-two seventeen kind of talk. Then verse 13 says, these all died in faith. Kind of interesting, kind of anticlimactic. Remember, they all died. <laughs> they all died in faith, though, not having received the things promised. You say, that's a gif. What kind of deal is that? What kind of example is that? But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Even the word acknowledge is better in the New American Standard because it's stronger. It's confessed. It's not just I tip my hat to that and acknowledge it. I confessed it. It was such a part of my conviction and being that it came out in my confession. I agreed with God about this. The here and now is temporary. They died in faith, not having received the things promised. And yet, they were anticipating something greater. See how this is going to be appealing to a Christian audience thinking about going back because they like their stuff a lot and they don't have a lot of stuff when they have Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father, not here right now. And you're tempted to think, well, I want him to be right here right now or I think I might go back. And he's saying, no, you want him to be at the right hand of the Father where your righteousness is and there's something better. And oh, by the way, let me give you the example of the Old Testament saints who did the same kind of thing. If they were here and you were able to talk to them about going back down the road to worship at the temple here on earth, or if you could have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, which one would they tell you to go for? They're speaking from their graves. <laughs> Don't go back. Because even they were anticipating something greater, you see? Even they were anticipating something greater. And then things really heat up. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Seeking, it's intense, it's fervent expectancy. That's their true desire, a homeland. Verse 15 says, If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, Ur is what it would be, they, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16 is worthy of bold, emboldening and underlining. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Their desire, even the, gr the grammar here, this is their disposition. Their disposition is longing for something that is heavenly, that won't fade away, that will last. And we've been seeing in Hebrews, that's tied to Jesus and tied to Christ. Don't go back. Learn from these patriarchs and matriarchs. The verse ends by saying in verse 16, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So it's lasting. And I hope you noticed by now, if you've been with us in our study for very long, where it says in verse 16, they desire a better country. Hope you noticed better. Because if you want a theme for Hebrews, it's better. Because we see it everywhere in the book. And you'd better notice it. 
Jesus is better. So we should be looking for something not here that is earthly, but something that is better, that is heavenly. And so he emphasizes it here in chapter 7, verse 19. In Jesus, we have a better hope. Chapter 8, verse 1, a better covenant in the new covenant. Chapter 9, verse 23, better sacrifices. Chapter 10, verse 34, a better possession. And here we have a better country. And it's all tied to the better priest who is Christ. He wants them to see that. Jesus, the heavenly priest. Verse 17 says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he would receive the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. How about that? In the act of offering up his only son. Thus having to be interrupted. Verse 18. Of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you're going to sacrifice your son who is the son of promise. So you're going to blow the whole deal. Verse 19 says, he considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the object of his faith was not in himself or his circumstances. The object of his faith was none other than God, the God who raises the dead. And it's pretty interesting how we have this prefigurement, if you will, for lack of a better way of saying it, of distinct Christian themes regarding Jesus and what would happen and regarding these people entering into the better city. How are they going to get there? Because they've died. Because we're talking about the God who raises the dead. So no doubt it's not coincidental that he emphasizes that here. Then verse 20 says, regarding Abraham's descendants. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, by faith, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So there's this devotion to God. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And that sounds like the end of Genesis with the death of Joseph. Mentioning the exodus... Anticipating, not experiencing. And so here we are, originally talking to a Jewish audience, and, and they should be getting it. He's connecting the dots. Listen to the patriarchs. Listen to the matriarchs. If you were to ask them what you should do, they, by their very example of trusting in the God who is able, would tell you, we've always been looking to the future. It's never been about the here and now, ultimately. And the author of Hebrews is using that kind of argumentation. And it's a little bit more of a stretch for us to say, okay, 21st century, we're not living in or around Jerusalem. It's not the same kind of issue for us right here and right now. In middle America. But we face the conflicts. Because of religion. And is it really worth it? Not only that. We hear people tell us. If you're a Christian. Everything should be going your way. And if things aren't going your way. You don't have enough. Faith. 
which is absolutely a scandal. Because you should translate that, biblically speaking, your God is not faithful. Because our faith is only as good as its object. It's about trusting in the one who is all-powerful. Okay? So when we read these examples, we see people who weren't perfect, because if we were to go back and read these texts, and read uh, around these texts, we'd see these people are sinners. Noah, the sinner. Faith Therefore, credited righteousness. But we should read these examples and say, here are these great men, these great women of faith who went through hard times, but they were looking beyond the circumstantial, looking beyond the here and now, looking for a better city. Even they were doing that. And it's so interesting to me because sometimes we say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they were earthly and were spiritual. Well, it's true. You could say, are earthy. Well, that, you, you, could, you could make a good argument for that on one level. But just make sure that's not the only level. Read Hebrews. We keep seeing this emphasis on even what they were experiencing as far as blessings from God. They were still looking for something more. We should be looking for something more. We're going to see more about that when we look at Moses. So let's go to the third act in the faith drama. It's Moses and other Exodus generation folks the first gen xers Uh, this is exodus generation that was almost funny and you were almost nice to almost laugh and your laughter was almost long enough for me to take a drink okay what we're about ready to read that, that this exodus generation remember there are people marked by conflict people marked by disappointment And we can all relate to that. Verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And I don't mind telling you that that's a puzzling verse. I'm just glad we're only doing the 30,000 foot version. We're doing the whole chapter because I'm thinking that's pretty interesting that they they trusted God because they had a beautiful child. It's just kind of interesting. (laughs) He was handsome. He was extraordinary looking. And so they trusted God. Kind of weird. But anyway, it's just, it's, it's probably not weird. It's just my lack of understanding. But you read a lot of commentaries and you say, yep, he was a beautiful child. So they trusted God. Uh, So what if he just looked like me? (laughs) It was ordinary. They wouldn't trust God. We got an ugly one, God. (laughs) Conehead, you know. I mean, but it, it literally, I mean, it's just what it's saying. They trusted God. Now, the emphasis, obviously, in Hebrews 11 is it's good to trust God, right? And it's good to fear God most and not fear Pharaoh. That's the emphasis. So let's not make light of the, the overall intent. Because the emphasis in verse 23 at the end is they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay. Now, I bet they were kind of afraid. I mean, this, this could be really bad for us, but ultimately they're going to trust God. So that's the major emphasis in what we would want to see. They're trusting God. They're fearing God in the right sense, and their fear of God eclipses their fear of man. This has been an emphasis in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 28. You're going to fear God, not man. 
Then verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And please hear verse 25 in the here and now as well as in the first century. Moses is a great example of faith and it shows itself because he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And think with me if you would to chapter 10 verse 25 where where Christians are not to forsake the assembling together of themselves as is the habit of some. Well, let's even see an example of that, because if it means you're gathering together with fellowship with other believers and it's going to be bad for you if you do that and that sort of thing. Hey, when we get to the great hall of faith, Moses, even if it meant ridicule and derision and shame, he trusted God so much that he wanted to be associated with the people of God. He wanted to be associated with the people of God because he had true faith. There's some good dots to be connected here. If you have true faith, you have Moses-like faith. And if you have Moses-like faith, you have faith that causes you to want to be with the people of God. So let's not miss that. Well, I don't have time for the people of God because I like to do other things. Those are called the fleeting pleasures of sin. Very important for us to see him as this example of faith trusting God, which causes him to want to be even with the people of God. Verse 26, motivation for Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How about that? I can do the hard thing. I can do the easy thing. And have health, wealth, and prosperity. I can associate myself with Messiah, with Christ. Because that's going to be something future for me as far as ultimate blessing. Entering into the fullness of those blessings. Or I can have health, wealth, and prosperity in the here and now. And he says, the example of Moses is, focus on association with Christ because that's better. Isn't it interesting? First century and 21st century Christians right now are learning something about Christianity from Moses. To me, it's ironic. No, I just think this is so wild in Hebrews. Notice what it's not doing. Based upon the flow of Hebrews, it's not saying, therefore, what you need to do is take the route of the Mosaic Covenant, Old Covenant. Hebrews has been telling us, no, not Mosaic Covenant. As a matter of fact, it's not Mosaic Covenant. It's New Covenant in Christ who fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. But he's not throwing Moses away. Because, in fact, if you could interview Moses today at your family gathering... And give him the microphone, Moses would tell you how to be a good Christian. And he could say, follow my example. <laughs> to me, it's just rocking my world to think about this in the light of the big picture of Hebrews. Don't follow the Mosaic law to get your right standing before God. You need Christ. <laughs> how would he have known he needed Christ? Think about this. 
if Moses listened to what God had said to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, he would know that he needed an ultimate redemption. He would know about an ultimate promise because it is through the Abrahamic covenant we have eventually coming the new covenant. Right? Just think with me a little bit. The Mosaic covenant is do this and live. And Moses is going, don't go down that road. As we're interviewing him. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham. Abram. It's based upon the work of God and God alone that you have the promise. Which is going to show itself ultimately in the new covenant. Fascinating to me. Let's learn about Christianity from Moses who looked past the here and now health, wealth, and prosperity. He turned that television off and he burned those books and said, I'm not going to listen to those people. I'm going to remember that my ultimate hope of redemption is in Christ. It says it right there, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Verse 26 is where it's at. He's a man of faith. And that's a great, important message for us. It's crucial for us. One person put it this way. If he believes the promises given to Abraham, he expects an ultimate redemption. My note to self was, so Christians need to learn here from Moses. Ironic, eh? king opposes him, his own people oppose him, but Christ is worth it. This first century audience needed to hear that. Opposition, opposition, Christ is worth it. Future, what I can't see in the here and now is worth it. We need to hear that too. Verse 27 says, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's maybe another good way to describe faith as far as future is concerned. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. He's looking forward as the other patriarchs and matriarchs did and being with God who is going to reward and he himself is going to be the reward. This goes back to chapter 11, verse 1, the unseen. Then verse 28 says, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That would have been worthy of ridicule. That would have been worthy of people speaking condemningly toward him. And again, you see what he's doing. The Jewish people are going to say, Oh, Pat, we love Passover. He's saying, Would you stop and think about Moses? What a fool he would have been. What an idiot he would have looked like. And yet he trusted God that through the shedding of blood there would be life. Let's learn from Moses. As you're feeling it because you don't have a job anymore, or you're feeling it because your spouse left you because of your devotion to Christ, or you're feeling it because you didn't get invited to the family gathering and Passover... Stop and think about Moses, the man of faith who trusted God. And remember the first Passover, it wouldn't have been like there was a big celebration. Remember that. And we see this as ultimately foreshadowing 
Jesus, who is called our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Verse 29 says, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea, the Reed Sea. There's nothing red about it, but there's lots of reeds in it. In Hebrew, it's reed, as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. They weren't trusting in God. Verse 30 says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. No doubt, that's more Jewish excitement. Yeah, Jericho smoked them. Yeah, but when that first happened, you have a bunch of adult men. You know, oh, we're just going to do this for a few days, seven days, and the walls are going to fall down. We're popular. We're cool. Everybody thinks we're great. Have you seen us on CNN? The great men of faith marching around the walls. A bunch of idiots. Stupid. Beyond stupid. What? What are they smoking? You know, oh, Yahweh. You know? It's crazy. Remember what happened at Jericho, he's saying to first century Christians. They trusted God, and this is how it would work out. And oh, by the way, you all think it's great now. We think it's great. Archaeologists today think it's great, even if they're unbelievers, because they it, it's the gold mine in the Middle East. Because you go there and you see that the walls are like this and the walls are like this, and you go, huh, this is amazing. Now, of course, there's going to be all kinds of speculation as to how it happened. But when you go there today, you say, interesting. But what we need to do is say, interesting. Christians, we say, cool, God is powerful. Archaeology is on our side. We're not stupid, us Christians. But we need to go further than that and remember that when it was originally done, it was done by faith and they did look like a bunch of whack jobs. The point is they trusted God for something they couldn't see because they were trusting in Him who is able. He is faithful. And when your life is falling apart, you need to remember a lot more than archaeology and cool and isn't that fascinating. Remember the great hall of faith. These people trusted God for the seemingly stupid, the uncomfortable, the affliction. And all of a sudden you think those walls really are cool in a whole different sense. Because they trusted in the God who is able to do whatever he wants to do and whatever he promises to do. And they were victorious in him. Then verse 31 says, By faith Rahab, man, if I wrote the Bible, I wouldn't put that in there. Oh, let's just include a prostitute for credibility purposes. Um, (laughs) By faith Rahab, the prostitute, um, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Joshua chapter 2 verse 9 says this, quoting, quoting her, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I know that the Lord has given you the land. So she, she, she's convinced that this is what God has done and we see some, something there of her, her, her faith. She's going to trust that this is God's will and so I'm going to get on his side and I'm going to help even with these spies. This one cuts two ways, too, the, the, the harlot, the, the, the prostitute. Think again. Put yourself in the, in the pews of the first century Christians where they didn't have pews. 
harlot. Because some of them may have been taking some heat for having Gentiles. She's a Gentile harlot. In this new believing community. And what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Your great grandma might say to you. Don't you know she's a goy? Don't you know she, she's a Gentile? Don't you know she's the kind of person we don't talk about at parties? And you worship with her? Unclean dog. The great hall of faith. There we have Rahab. The other side of it might be you or be such a person. It would cut the other way. And I would never be welcome and I would never be able to be accepted by God and I would never be able to... My faith would never be strong enough. She's trusting God who is the strong one. And now we speed things up. You know, we, we're, we're told that Hebrews was a sermon and this is evidence of that because now he's going to say, okay, we have to hurry up. It's almost lunchtime. Um, so he's going to go fast here in verse 32. And what more shall I say as if I could go on and on and on for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, his crushing victory going from 32,000 to 300 to conquer the Midianites. Barak, superior military confronting him, this machine of 900 chariots. And yet he prevails. Samson recognizing the victory over the Philistines is due to God's work. Jephthah, to overthrow the Ammonites at a crucial time in Israel's history. David, Israel's greatest king. Samuel, who powerfully interceded on Israel's behalf. And the prophets, whether it be Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the, uh, the, the 12 prophets. He just gives us the fast list. Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All of this, God is the object of faith. Some of those were strong people. Some of them were weak people. But throughout it all, it's God being the object of their faith. And that's what makes them commendable. 35 says women receive back their dead by resurrection. We see this in 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings chapter 4. But here's what happens that I think is so helpful. Okay? From 32 to 35a, let's call it. Triumphant heroes. Yeah, my, my son went off to war and he was killed and, and, and he was raised. And you say, faith in God. And if you listen to people who have only had those experiences, your life is going to be miserable because there are other kinds of experiences. And I'm so glad in Hebrews 11, he gives us the great triumphant side of things. But to balance it out, he gives us the suffering heroes. And this is crucial. 35 goes on to say, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better, ah, that's our important word, a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And we could take the time to talk about Jeremiah and Hananiah and Micaiah and Maccabean martyrs and things like that, but we won't. Verse 37 says, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 38, of whom the world, that is humanity and rebellion against God used here, 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Then 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In one sense, I want to stop there and go back first century audience and and have the writer to Hebrews suggesting at this point in time, you need to read your Bibles closer. You think you need to stop following Jesus because somehow he doesn't deliver because you're not happy and you're feeling persecuted and you're feeling all of these things and all of this suffering. You better get your Torah out again and you better get out the prophets and you better read your Bible closer. Because it's not just the victorious who are commended in Scriptures. It's also those who had faith, yes, but in the here and now did not experience the fullness of blessing. I mean, it just drops like a lead weight. Commended through faith in verse 39. Boom! Did not receive what was promised. And I would say the same thing to you. You need to read your Bible closer. You need to know that when you're promised health, wealth, and prosperity, whether it be by someone who wears that on your shirt sleeve or by a well-meaning friend, you need to read your Bible closer. They did not receive what was promised. Because then we read on in verse 40, since God had provided something, and this is tied to Christ throughout Hebrews, because he's the one who's better something, better for us. Old Testament and New Testament saints, better for us. That apart from us, he's talking to New Testament side of things, if you will, they, the Old Testament ones, should not be made perfect. You might have chosen to do it a different way if you were God. We are all thankful you're not God. But if you were God, you might have done it a different way. But in God's plan and purpose, He is waiting till we're all in this together before we enter into the fullness of this promise. But please notice the emphasis on the better. It's something that is because of Christ, new covenant, we can, we, we can embrace Him. Uh, we can say it's already all done and complete because He sat down and all of those things. He's interceding on our behalf. So in that sense, the better promises is, re- promise is real now. But in another sense, we are yet to enter into that in its fullness. We're waiting for Christ's return, which is an emphasis in Hebrews. And so... Unfortunately, our chapter ends there because it ought not, right? Because if we look at chapter 12 and verse 1 and verse 2, and we'll end on this. He takes us through the great hall of faith. And then, then he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
of martyrs or of people who suffered is the idea. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us, let us be like them, like those witnesses, those martyrs, those sufferers who are waiting for something better and let us run with endurance, this perseverance idea, this clinging on to from chapter 10 idea, endurance, the race that is set before us, verse 2, how? Looking to Jesus, as other translations say, fixing our eyes on Jesus. By the way, like Moses, we learned about earlier in our chapter. That's what's crucial and essential, whether it's that century or our century. The focus in Hebrews has been on Jesus who is better and now he's giving us this great example of people of faith and now he says, remember, it's still about the same thing. It's about fixing, riveting your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Right? And so, come what may, genuine faith perseveres and how does it persevere? I just got to try harder. I just got one of those belts with nails inside of it and put rocks in my shoes and put gravel in my mouth and started reading the monks and, and, and reading a bunch of this kind of stuff from monasteries and, and then my faith would persevere. If I just tried harder, he goes, no, fixing your eyes, your focus, your gaze on the new covenant high priest whose work is Done, who once and for all entered into the holy place. Fix your eyes on him and come heaven or high water. You will persevere because you'll see him for who he is. And you'll trust in him. The best object of faith. Right? Welcome to 2012. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes it into the Bible promise books. Um, focus on Christ and His perfect work. Read the book of Hebrews if you need help because it's designed to get you through the hard times because His work is done Finished, supreme, fitting, sufficient, better, and worthy of our devotion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed our object of faith. And we are grateful that our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in itself. We're grateful that we can trust you, and we can trust you for the future. We can trust you for our past. And we can have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would ask that this next year would be a great year. A great year of joy in our hearts regardless of our circumstances. And it would be a great year of proclamation. That we would have many opportunities to open our mouths and to speak with clarity. And to speak with compassion. And to speak with boldness about Jesus who is better. Jesus who is sufficient, Jesus who is worthy of our praise and our rejoicing. And do give us a burden to open our mouths and to ask people questions, questions like what do you think faith is, so that we might be able to engage people in conversation, not so we can win arguments, but so that we might be able to speak appropriately and fittingly 
with others about your great Son, Jesus, in whom we worship, in whom we trust. In His name we pray, amen.